It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Writer Susan Orlean says America is in crisis because our ideological divides keep us from talking to one another. In today's show, she encourages you to be driven by curiosity, like a writer is, to listen and learn from people who think differently. Are you curious about the people who are not you? Doesn't mean you have to like them, doesn't mean you ever have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you'll ever find common ground with them, but are you curious? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. When she wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Orchid Thief, Susan Orleans says she didn't know a thing about orchids. I actually went to orchid growers and said, so I skipped a lot of science. How do flowers have babies? The growers thought she was an idiot, she says, which was useful. They gave her a better explanation of the flower than she would have received otherwise. As a writer, Orlean often enters someone else's world. But she doesn't arrive to an interview with a brain full of research. Her approach is deliberately unprepared, which allows her to say to her subject, You know something that I don't know, and I'm here to learn about it. Approaching people unlike ourselves with curiosity rather than judgment can help us find commonalities. It's difficult, though, in today's divisive atmosphere. More and more, she says, people are only socializing with the like-minded, especially in cities. Orlean, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker, speaks with Pete Dominic, a comedian and radio host on Sirius XM. Here's Dominic. Are there so many different kinds of people? Some are far more curious than others. And, and here's what I mean. My daughter is 12 years old, and she loves to read, which is, I, I couldn't figure out how she's my daughter, um, because when I was that age, I didn't. And she says, my favorite place to be is the bookstore. And I say, well, better enjoy it now, because it might not last. Um, <laughs> or the library. And because when you walk in there, you see all these books on the shelves, and, and, and there's a kind of person that I think is her and is me, and I want to know all of those things. And the same when uh, I pick up an issue of The New Yorker. I want to read every article, and, and I feel an, almost a sense of anxiety when I don't read The New York Times op-ed section. I'm like, oh my gosh, I missed yesterday. Are there different kinds of people in terms of a spectrum of curiosity? Are there some of us that just don't care when we walk in the oh, bookstore? Oh, absolutely. And I think that so much of the conversation that I've been listening to in the, these last couple of days are all about this very fundamental issue, which is, are we curious about each other or not? And that's why, on one hand, I can say this is like tips of the trade for writers. It's more than that. It's a life issue. Are you curious about the people who are not you. Doesn't mean you have to like them, doesn't mean you ever have to agree with them, it doesn't mean you'll ever find common ground with them, but are you curious? Are there people who are, I, I think there's some people who are just shy and really need to be in familiar worlds, and they can still have an open mind, but there are also people, I feel that I'm chronically curious, I can't, not take the wrong turn when I'm, you know, I, when I travel places, I, you know, I, I, 
I'll make a nominal effort to see the important things, but I'm, that's not really what I care about. I'd rather sort of wander around and bump into things and have accidental experiences and serendipitous ones. But more than that, it's just, can you enter another person's life with an open mind? And even if it's a world that you find challenging, and I'm not, I, and being open doesn't mean that you endorse it. I, for instance, I did a story um, for The New Yorker about children's beauty pageants. Um, this was a little bit after John Benet Ramsey had been murdered, and there was this enormous reaction of, oh my God, you know, she was a child beauty star um, in these beauty pageants. And my reaction and the reaction of everyone I knew was, this is disgusting, can you believe people, you know, put their children in beauty pageants? And then I thought, you know, I shouldn't accept this assumption. I feel like I don't know anything about it. I'm making a decision and a value judgment, and I know nothing about it. I don't know why people would put their kids in beauty pageants. I, I have to believe there's a reason beyond that they're all evil, awful people. Um, and... You know, the New Yorker, it was, it, there was a beat between me saying to my editor, like, I really want to go write about children's beauty pageants. Like, uh, not the New Yorker topic, really. Which made me think, more reason to do it. And I went down with, you know, to me it was a wonderful challenge to overcome my bias, um, which was, this is really awful. I can't believe anybody would do this. And to say, all right, yes, I'm okay. I'm entitled to an opinion, but I should educate myself and then see where I am at the end of that education. And I came out, um, you know, if I had had a girl, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I came away feeling like I wouldn't do this, but the people who are doing it are doing it because they have an aspiration and a, a fantasy that their child will, first of all, be acknowledged, which is something that maybe if you're a, a working class person, you don't get that very often. You don't get someone saying, you have the most beautiful right. baby. Secondly, there's the idea that you'll end up maybe getting scholarship money when you're, if you continue beauty pageants. These are real concerns. They're not in my world, but it's not right to say, ugh, disgusting, anybody who does this is disgusting. Um, are there limits? Sure, if someone said to me, you know, there's something good you can say about Nazis, I'd probably say, eh, don't think so. But. I feel like we need to challenge our assumptions and push to those uncomfortable places because we are ignorant. And, and uh, you know, I have opinions that I feel are coming out of real knowledge that I c I'm okay with that are, you know, they're things I don't like, but I feel that I've made the effort to understand them and then I can have an opinion. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. 
writer Susan Orlean is featured in another Aspen Ideas To Go episode. She speaks with journalist Michelle Norris about a new book due out this year. It focuses on the Los Angeles Public Library, a building that was nearly destroyed by fire in 1986. The library, it really was literally and figuratively rising from the ashes. The library was reborn and the life history of the library became unusually interesting because it was an arson. Find Orlean's conversation with Michelle Norris by searching Takeover 6 in Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts. You can also find a link in our show notes. Back to today's episode, which features a conversation that happened on the Aspen Ideas Festival stage last June. Pete Dominic. I shared a radio studio with Steve Bannon. All right, there you go. You know go. who he is? Uh, I heard yeah. of him. He's heard a bag of, of shit, but he, every day I would see him. Every day I would walk in and I would see Steve Bannon, who ran Breitbart and is now, you know, one of the president's most influential advisors, which is terrifying. And I am a smug, condescending liberal prick. And so... Your we, words, not mine. Right. So I had to try to suspend judgment. I, I tried to suspend judgment and find out what, I, what there is about this guy. And what I found out about Steve Bannon is he's brilliant. I mean, Goebbels brilliant, but brilliant. And so everybody has something to offer. His is evil, and I'm not saying anything good. But, but what we're talking about, and it's what we have right now, is a major ideological divide, unlike anything that m many of us have seen in our lifetime. And how do we approach that? Because it's not necessarily that's a, that's a, a trans person or that's um, someone from another country or culture or religion. It's... I'm very liberal, and that person's very conservative, and I either am going to welcome them into my home or my life or conversation or not. And right. too much, it's you're bad, I'm good, either side. So and what do we I, do now? It's a, it's a crisis, and I really – I do think it's a crisis, and I, I thought it was really interesting – uh, the New Yorker ran a piece during the run-up to the election where George Saunders went to a lot of Trump rallies and wrote about them in a way that I thought was really an effort. I mean, and he said that until recently he'd been a Republican, which was interesting for people who worship George Saunders. You go, whoa, that's a surprise. But... He wrote about it in a way to say, you've got to not immediately demonize people who you don't agree with. And it's, it's a crisis that, you know, this is the American experiment. Can people with many different backgrounds and beliefs live together peacefully? That's what this country is. And I feel like we're moving dramatically away from that. There is a know-nothingism, and liberals are just as guilty of it. I would say there's probably a more adamant know-nothingism in reactionary circles, but, you know, it was interesting. I went to a panel the other day, and one of the speakers, it was about media, and one of the speakers said, well, if you feel that a, a news outlet 
isn't uh, covering things the way you want, don't listen. And I thought, wow, I really disagree. I mean, I have to hold my nose to read or listen to the media that's not in in concert with my beliefs, but if I don't have a clue of what they're saying, I'm missing, I don't know anything. Then I don't know anything. And then I'm just being a, a really having a knee-jerk reaction. And, and I think, just to finish this thought, I live some of the time in Los Angeles and some of the time in a small rural town in upstate New York. In cities, because cities are large, people it, they become very balkanized. And you tend to spend time with people who are just like you. That is what happens in large cities. When you live in a small town, you interact with a much wider range of people with much more diverse points of view, which is kind of funny. I think it's the inverse of what we believe like, I'm liberal, I live in L.A., which shows that I'm super liberal, but everyone I know in L.A. has the exact same point of view as I do, with the same economic status, everything, and 90% of them are even in the same industry. In, up, in upstate New York, I, I interact with the guy who plows the snow and my neighbor who is uh, you know retired school teacher and um, a range of people I, from every you know that's what small towns are you've got a doctor and you've got the drunk guy who's wandering Main Street all day and I'm not making that up um, come to Pine Plains if you'd like to see him he's been there for about seven years just walking up and Have down you written about him and <laughs> he's, he's too drunk um, <laughs> But I think as America becomes more urban, and I think that is actually demographically true, I think we're moving into worlds where we will interact more often with people who are just like us. And that means you've got to make the effort and make it your homework, however you do it, to have a conversation with someone who isn't just like you with some regularity. And you don't have to be a, a writer or a reporter to do that. You just make that little effort. You're in an Uber, talk to the person driving the Uber. And here, I mean, it's a really good exercise. And it reminds you that, you know, that there's a range of opinions and a range of, of perspectives and reasons for those perspectives. In, in a range of humanity. Pro the problem that a lot of us come across is that we're afraid of offending somebody that we don't know about, and so therefore we might not ask them a question or even want to spend time with them, not because uh, we might not disagree with them or we might not like them. We're just afraid to offend somebody who is you know, of a different faith, of a different culture, of a different color maybe even. And, and so we just, and again, there are different kinds of people. Some, some of us go towards those people and sit in that cab and fire off a billion questions. How do you pronounce that? What's your religion? Do you have to wear that? I'm fine with that because I, I think that that's how I get my mind open. But I'm also, I, I don't want to offend them when I say right. something. But you know what? I, I mean, I've even dealt with that just with women. 
you know, my whole life. I mean, as, as well, a Well, if as you a man. say, what's your bra size, it's probably not the question that a lot of women want to ask. But how I open. Let me write that yeah. down, not to do that. And no, I, you know, I, I would say, and maybe my experience is um, unusual, but I feel like expressing interest in someone, even if it's clumsy, is an enormous gesture. And I've asked people things that, you know, maybe they weren't expecting to be asked. And I've almost never had anyone really get angry and offended. I really haven't. I think um, my discomfort, you know, I've gotten very much in the habit of saying to people, how do you pronounce your name? If it's a name that's, you know, it's not a monosyllabic American Anglo-Saxon name, I don't know. I I think it's a nice thing to say, how do you pronounce your name? And tell me, because I want to say it the right way. I had a, a cab driver in New York once. It had an Arab name, and it was very difficult uh, to, to read, even in English. And I said, what's your what's your name? How do I how do I say that? And he goes, just call me Sam. And I was like, no, no, just just let me, just tell me how to pronounce it. I want to give it a shot. And he's like, my name is Halam Alahala Shabbat. And I'm like, okay, Sam, I, uh, I'm not even going to butcher that. But I mean, when I introduce people on the radio or sometimes I'm like, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to get that wrong. But that's what you meant by the word clumsy. And most people yeah. have no problem with you being clumsy if it's clear that you're making an effort to learn about right. them. Yeah, and I think that it's a natural awkwardness. I mean, you and I do this for a living, I have spent my entire professional life going up to strangers and saying, hi, be my friend. (laughs) And, you know, there was a a survey done of uh, American adults some years ago where they were asked what they feared the most. And the number one thing they feared was swimming. And the second thing they feared the most was being at a party with strangers. And I thought, interesting, because that's all I do, is that is my profession I go to parties with strangers and I completely understand that it's human nature to feel shy about saying where are you from or how do you say your name or how long have you been here and and yet think of how you feel when someone asks you a question it's actually a kind of wonderful feeling like oh you're interested in me I just eat it up I think I mean I do those stupid surveys when I'm done you know calling United Airlines I say if you're willing to do a survey press one I think oh my god they want my opinion you're the one who does it I am I am the only person and I've done them every bit of market research I'm the one even United Um, I yeah like please don't beat me up I on my next flight. <laughs> Please don't drag yeah. me off this plane. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I, honest to God, and I know that seems incredibly dorky and embarrassing, but it's true. I feel like, oh my God, you want my opinion, or you, you're asking me. I mean, the only time I don't like it is when I'm checking into an ho- a hotel and I can tell they've just been told they should ask me, <laughs> and you know where they're told like here's your script and you're in the <laughs> elevator how was your flight in like you really don't care don't ask me but generally speaking this is the currency of human interaction and we should spend it and spend it and spend it because it's infinitely renewable and the payoff is immeasurable i don't want this to become therapy or, or about me but i sometimes will look down on a person 
And generally, if there's a, a, a commonality, that person is usually someone who's not curious. And I look down on them because the judgment will be, how can you not be curious about this thing? How can, there's, it's so easy just to look things up. Why don't you be curious? What do you, do you ever do that? Do you ever yeah. t look down, talk down, condescend, and find yourself doing that and going, I know that's wrong, but I can't help but not, quote, look down on. You know, I, I do, and I feel I like I'm a when, I'm, I said that. when I'm traveling and I see people holding a guidebook and staring at the guidebook and being at the place, but they're focused on their guidebook, and I just want to say, pro tip, put the guidebook down, actually experience the moment, and I'm completely, um, I, I have a total bias in that regard. And I have to overcome it by thinking, well, maybe you've never traveled before and you, you think there are rules for how to travel. And it's not your fault. I mean, I've traveled a ton. So for me, I'm, I'm not going to go stand at the Eiffel Tower reading my guidebook. But I had a different life. So... I mean, I remember my husband and I went to China on our honeymoon, and we, we were traveling with a group, and they were uh, a few of the people were just carrying granola bars, and they had never eaten Chinese food, and they didn't want to try it. And I thought, and you're in China. Um, but it was like they were checking it off a list. I'm in China, and I'm going to stay in the room and eat my granola bar. And then I thought, you know what, it's probably pretty scary if you're somebody who is maybe from a small city and you've never traveled and you're suddenly overwhelmed. Right. Um, yeah, I'd sure like to encourage you to get out of your comfort zone, but... But they already are just by making the trip. So yeah. you, you, you can almost check that bias right yeah. there. At least they've gone that far, whereas so many of us don't even have a passport. Yeah, I actually uh, once spoke on a, a cruise and there was a woman who actually lived on the boat. And, I mean, she was, honest to God, had the boat was sort of circumnavigating the globe and she lived on it. And we had gotten to Saigon, and I was ready to die. I thought, I can't believe I'm going to be in Saigon. This is the most exciting thing. And I, she was seated at my table, and I said to her, what are you going to do when we get to Saigon? She said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, what, what are you going to try to see? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm staying in my room. Why would I want to go out there? And I've never forgotten it because I thought, I mean, it was it was the strangest um, cognitive dissonance that she had chosen to live on a boat that was traveling around the world, but she did not want to get off the boat and see these cultures. And, you know, honestly, I thought, God, she'd be a great story to write because that's an amazing state of mind. I mean, and it's... And for me, it's so alien to me that it would be that much more of a challenge to say what's what are the gears clicking in her head so i think that rather than going to the immediate like well you're not like me so you're wrong or bad i think it's a moment where you have to stop and say interesting what makes that person make that choice that's so different from mine what's that all about 
We're mostly talking about people. Um, you've written about so many different subjects. How, how do you, and some of them you could almost approach and be like, how, how will that be, become interesting? That's a mundane thing. How am I, how do you decide this is the thing I'm going to write a full article or even a, a whole book about? Does it jump out? Are you like, that? Uh, take us through some of those choices. Uh, I would say that everything I've ever written about, um, most people's first reaction is, that is a really bad idea right. to write about. Right. And and even to tell you the truth, I often have that feeling where I think, why am I doing it? What made me think this was interesting? And it's a struggle, honest to God. But it's just purely a gut feeling of I'll stumble into some kind of story or situation or person and something in me makes me think, I really want to know more about that. And the entire time, I'm also struggling with this idea of, well, maybe no, I'm, maybe I'm the only person who finds this interesting. And that's scary for a writer because you're kind of hoping still, like a hun uh, like that millions of people find it interesting. You still have that feeling? Like oh, at this totally. point in your career, really? Totally. And all I... I mean, the only thing I can say to myself is people will find anything interesting if they're interested in the person telling them about it. Okay. I mean, you have to believe that because, you know, people came up to me after I wrote The Orchid Thief and they said, wow, I sure didn't think I'd read a book about orchids. And I said, well, I sure didn't think I'd write a book about right. orchids. So we're on the same page there. And, you know, these ideas just stick in my head and I, I keep feeling this nagging curiosity and then I have to really, truly embrace the idea that I can have a reader experience that same nagging curiosity as I did. Um, even if they initially think, well, I sure don't want to read a whole book about a German Shepherd who was on TV. You think, well, actually, surprise. Uh, you're gonna. And I think it's also a bit of a contrarian impulse on my part to think, I am going to make you right. find this interesting, damn it. You know, there, when I started my career, the easiest path was to do celebrity profiles. You get assignments, you do it, and in a way it was very easy. It's kind of fun and pretty painless, and you knew there was a built-in audience for a profile of Tom Hanks. And I had been a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, and, you know... Basically, you're doing a steady diet of celebrity profiles. And then I started asking to write about bands that I didn't like that were really popular because I thought, I don't understand oh, why people like them. I want to write about this. So there is something contrarian in me. To I want to understand the things that I don't know about, and I want... To me, the greatest accomplishment I can ever have is to have someone say, I didn't think I'd be interested in children's beauty pageants or taxidermy or orchid collectors or arsonists. That's my book that I'm working on. But it, you got me interested. And I think, well, then I've accomplished something. I made you look outside the world you thought you cared about. And maybe there will be some repercussion down the road. 
Today's episode, It's Okay to be Clueless, features best-selling author Susan Orlean and comedian Pete Dominic. He was the resident opener on The Colbert Report and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Aspen Ideas to Go is available in a growing number of places. Listen on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, and now Spotify. Just search Aspen Ideas to Go and start listening. Here's the rest of today's show. Is it ever too late in life to learn a new skill? Because, yeah, instinctively people will say no, but I'm, you know, just quickly, I'm, I'm 41. We moved to the suburbs 10 years ago, and we bought a house, and things started breaking. And my wife said, can you go down and take a look at the garage door? I think it broke. And I looked behind me to see who she was talking to. Surely you mean the handyman. Right, uh, right. And I said, well, I can take a look at it. I can, t- I can tell you if something doesn't work. So I realize now it's so much easier now than ever before to learn anything because YouTube will teach you anything about how to set up your iPhone, play guitar, or as uh, apparently yeah. we have in common, grow a garden. So... I learned how to fix a patch in drywall. My wife is here. She'll say it's not really that good. Um, right. But I learned how to have a garden. You have chickens. I do, and I have black Angus cattle. What? Not, not in L.A. Um, <laughs> I, although, I'm looking into that. Um, no, it's never too late. Never, never, never. I will be good at it. Never. It doesn't matter. Being good, it doesn't matter. Learn something. Learn something. Learning is one of those few things that has intrinsic, ultimate value. It doesn't matter. Being good doesn't matter. Accomplishing, you know, achieving something doesn't matter. Learning matters. And it, it does. It's, and we are in an amazing moment in history. I mean, the other day, I know this is embarrassing, but I learned how to fold fitted sheets on YouTube, and I thought, see? You can act, no, I, I refuse I, to, that fake news. You yeah. cannot fold a fitted sheet. Yes, you can. You go, and, and there are about 20,000 videos on YouTube. But the truth is, no, it isn't too late. And in fact, I would say, as you get older, and the, the, the sort of pressure of achieving what you're achieving in your life is lessened, you are in the perfect position. You have nothing to lose. It's, it's the moment where you can learn and absorb and experience life and you've got the time, you've got the luxury of knowing that it doesn't all have to have an end game. I mean, think when you're 25 and you're thinking, I've got to get a career going, you you don't have that luxury as much when you're older and you've you've kind of gotten your life rolling that's the moment where you can say i'm just going to learn i'm going to try i'm going to experience my grandmother learned new languages i mean my grandfather died when my grandmother was probably about 70 she was a completely submissive old school wife my grandfather would smoke a cigarette halfway down and she would smoke the last half. That was the, uh, you know, they were European and, (laughs) you know, she was totally in his shadow. He died, and it's not like, yay, Grandpa died, but my grandmother turned into a very different person, began traveling, 
learn new languages. And it was like, there wasn't an end game. She wasn't then going to teach Italian. She was experiencing and learning, and I really admired that. I thought that was extraordinary. My dad also was learning till the day he died, and Mm. he died at 92, and he was learning, you know, a few days before he died, he was... He had gotten a new iPod, and he wanted to have me, you know, tell him how to download stuff on the iPod. And, you know, I mean, there's no reason that you shut down at a certain point. Truly, people become more who they are as they're older, and it's up to you to fight against that. To say, I know what I know, and I don't want to know anything else. I have opinions, and I don't want to hear anything else. A huge mistake. I have to hog you for one more question, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to our friends here. Um, you mentioned your dad. And so I have two daughters. They're 12 and 9. And like I said at the very opening, from the moment I met you and, and your husband, I said, there's something about this woman. Um, you made me and the other two guys that you we were talking to um, feel like we were uh, the most important people in that moment. And that's um, a unique quality and, and a positive attribute, especially when there's a whole bunch of people walking around with name tags. And you can look past us to see who else there is coming. And my question is, what as parents can we do? What can I do to have my daughters grow up to be like you? Um, Well, first of all, thank you. I take that as a huge compliment. I think modeling curiosity is the single most valuable thing you can do. My dad would drag us as children. um, I grew up in Cleveland in the suburbs. He would drag us downtown and drive us through tough neighborhoods and say, you should know not everybody lives the way you live. And let me tell you, at the point when I was growing up, most of the people I knew never went to downtown Cleveland. Ne- and really, and my dad built a lot of low-income housing projects, and he would make us pick toys we liked and go and visit with some of the kids in the projects. And Believe me, we didn't love it. I'm not saying like I was like, yay. I wanted to go to the mall and hang out with my friends, but my dad was really insistent. You, We're going downtown and pick a couple toys and we'll bring them to the kids. And you meet them and we'd go into their homes, which were not, not they were very small housing project apartments. And to do that when you're, 10 or 12, it's a pretty profound thing. Um, My dad also was the guy who we'd get to New York City and he would just get a token and get on a bus without any idea of where it was going. And we were like, no, I want to go to F.A.O. Schwartz. And he'd be, no. And we would sit, a public bus, by the way, not a tour bus, an MTA, and ride around, and believe me, when we were kids, we were like, Dad's so weird, I can't stand this. But it probably had the most powerful effect on me um, to make me live outside the sort of suburban privileged bubble we were in, and also to, as I matured, think, this is actually really interesting. This is 
wow, this is really interesting going through these neighborhoods that I would never mm. see otherwise. That is so cool. I'm so glad I asked that question. I, I think my dad uh, did that too, but not on purpose. Son of a bitch, where the hell are we? Mary, where are we? It's getting dark. Lock the doors. Get out. Yeah. All right. Uh, your hands. Uh, your questions. I, I saw okay. you first. I saw you first. And then, and then this gentleman. Yes. All right. Right here. Uh, no, we have, uh, no, we'll we have... repeat the questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just to, uh, for the sake of our taping, to, to uh, repeat the, the comment, which is that what we all seem drawn to these days are putting people of very opposite opinions together to fight and not this more benign enterprise of learning about other worlds and other perspectives. The truth is, and I want you to build on this, but the truth is we're not opposites. That, what we do on cable news, they literally will, will call or text, we want to make sure that, you're, that you, this is your point of view. They want us to be in complete disagreement with each other, but the truth is that's not how we are. There's tons of overlap in so many areas, but right. when you pick a fine subject and the people be, being on TV know to get invited back, they're supposed to be combative. But I don't think that's how we are. I don't think we're really that way. I think media makes right. us that way. Well, it's it's news has become a reality show, right. and I think I'm hoping that this is this will pass. That people will get sick of it and. There will, I mean, can I predict that that will happen? I don't know. I don't see how people can stand it forever. It's, uh, you know, the, it just feels like the the metabolism of the nation can't tolerate that kind of amped up, um, <laughs> the amped up conflict, which is not really reflecting the exchange of ideas. I, and I have to believe, ultimately, that will pass. And there will be, you know, look, we got rid of Roger Ailes. We got rid of, there are people who are very much part of Hello, cre creating that atmosphere who are dinosaurs now. And, you know, the new generation of Murdochs are on the record against the the dramatization of conflict and maybe we're all sick of it i maybe, sure hope so maybe that will change when women run the world well it would i mean i you know i think women don't as a rule don't function that way and that is very it's a very different style of interaction yes sir so my question is uh is there a topic or a subject that you have written about um now in retrospect you thought you learned, but oh wow, kind of really got that wrong, or I didn't get the complete story. I think I would never suggest that I know everything about any subject that I've written about. There, it's just uh, I think a fool's errand to feel like wow, I really, I really know that. I mean, I would say that I've immersed myself in a lot of subjects, and because. My goal is to learn them. I've ended up knowing a broader and more comprehensive amount about that subject, whereas people within that world probably know a single aspect of it more deeply. Um, but do I feel like, wow, I completely nailed that? There was nothing more for me to learn? No. I never have felt that. I, 
and I feel that as a writer, I'm very careful about and comfortable with acknowledging to my reader, this is what I know. This is not the 100% truth because no one can ever know the 100% truth. You are, this is my story as I've learned it. And it's subjective. It's going to reflect my limitations as a reporter, as a writer, as a thinker. I mean, I can't, I can't pretend, nor do I feel I need to pretend to more than that. And I honestly think readers are very forgiving. I mean, I think that what they want is honesty. And if you say these are the facts as I as best I know them, but that doesn't mean that there may not be more facts that I, I wasn't able to find. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Please, thank one more time for much. Susan Orlane. Thank you all very much. This was really, really awesome. And thank you for everybody here. Thank you. Susan Orlane is the best-selling author of eight books. Her 1999 book, The Orchid Thief, was made into the Academy Award-winning film, Adaptation. Pete Dominic is the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM's Insight Channel. He created, developed, and launched the channel in 2015. It carries our show, Aspen Ideas To Go. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.